Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to the McClifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, the big story this week has been the publication of the final report into the mother and baby homes and related matters. It's been a very emotional time for survivors of these homes in particular and a time of great reflection at the very least for an awful lot of people in the population. It's nearly 3,000 pages long uh, and it goes into the details of conditions in the homes, the attitudes both inside the homes and among wider society towards single women who were pregnant and it goes into detail around the processes that led many babies to be adopted, most babies practically, well over 95% or so at one stage. Just a few quick figures to give you an idea of what's involved. Over 9,000 babies died in these homes between 1922 and 1998. 56,000 women went through them and 57,000 babies were born, the vast majority, as I say, of whom were adopted, some in disputed circumstances. Now, those figures apply just to the 18 homes that were examined in the report. There are a number of county homes as well that weren't part of it, and the estimate is that a further 25,000 women went through those. In the round, it's a harrowing narrative of a very dark chapter in this country's history. I think there's been two dominant themes to emerge from a lot of the reporting and comment. One is what exactly can be done to relieve the burden of survivors and meet the kind of needs that they have. And the other has been, I suppose, a reflection on the kind of country that allowed this to happen and where exactly culpability lies for it. Joining me to discuss the report and the fallout is Dr. Catherine O'Donnell, Associate Professor in the School of Philosophy in UCD. Catherine also works with the Justice for Magdalene Research, which advocates for Magdalene Laundry survivors. Catherine, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Mick. Good to be here. Catherine, you've worked for a long time in this whole area of where women and young girls were, I suppose, victims of of the state, of culture and religious life in this country through a long part of the 20th century. What's your general reaction to the publication this week? Well, in some ways, I'm, I'm, as you know, Mick, a little bit reluctant to be on the podcast um, because as an academic, uh, speaking about a report that I haven't read is a sin. <laughs> um, and I haven't read it. And I want to kind of state that clearly. I have read the executive summary. I have read the recommendations. And I have read part four, which is the what I'm going to call a, a weird, from my point of view, amalgam of bits and bobs and scraps and paragraphs of um, excerpts from... Um, uh, people who gave witness testimony. And um, so I, my reaction to the report has to be very partial in that, that regard. Uh, I can't really talk about it in detail. So that's the first reaction. Um, lots of caveats there. The second reaction is great. We have it from my point of view, and this might sound kind of cruel, um, 
because I am also somebody who's not, not directly affected in that I'm not adopted. Um, my mother said she often wants to sit me down and tell me that I'm not adopted. What am I doing worrying about adoption? But uh, I'm worried about adopt, adoption as a, an Irish feminist. Um, and I also, I'm thankfully not, not somebody uh, who has lost a, a child or children to adoption. So um, in that sense, I've no skin in the game. Um, but my reaction to the report, therefore, is somebody who can just say, OK, great, that's over and done with. Um, because the, the, this commission, from my point of view, has merely been about the state wanting to tell some kind of story to itself about what it was involved in uh, throughout a lot of the 20th century. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that process is over. So now we can actually talk concretely about the 21st century um, and no longer dwell in history, as it were, but actually dwell in the pressing needs and issues that adopted people uh, and their natural parents have, um, because these are real live issues. So now we can now we can talk about the present and how we'd like to have a republic in the future. So from that point of view, I welcome this report. Yeah, and you mentioned there, it's an interesting observation that the the commission was largely about forming a narrative or a a story of what life was like then. But to that extent, Catherine, do you think it it wasn't primarily about looking for answers and perhaps justice for those who were through that system? Not at all. Just look at the structure of the report, Mick. they, They didn't know what to do with the testimony that came to them. It's it's dangling in part four. They even have paginated it kind of from page one to 200 and something. So it's it's outside the bulk of the report. So in other words, the, the people directly affected, adopted people and their parents, uh, specifically their mothers who spent time in these institutions, were not central. So there was no fact finding from the point of view of the witnesses who were directly impacted by the awful processes of coerced adoption. Um, And, you know, as Conrad Bryan of Mixed Race Irish Group says, that the Irish state seems to want to investigate buildings rather than what's going on for its people. Uh, The very fact that they just picked a number of institutions um, rather than the whole entire kind of apparatus of what happened uh, on WED's single mums and their babies just, for me, always spoke volumes. Yeah, no, you're right. It's a very good point. And I mean, I suppose, as you say, they picked a number of institutions. There's an estimate there's 25,000 other women, presumably at least a portion of whom are still alive, who were in, in the other homes. And, you, you know, you could argue they were randomly excluded from the whole process. Yeah, I mean, there were also women who gave birth in hospitals who, and certainly middle class women who were private patients. Um, uh, and we have... One of the biggest agencies, the St. Patrick's Guild Agency, not examined at all, for example. Um, So there were a lot of adoption agencies that completely fall out of the remit of this institutional gaze. And even the apology, which I, again, from my point of view, um, I thought was a very good apology by Micheál Martin. It's certainly compared to his predecessors, Enda Kenny and... Cowan and Ahern, I thought it was a, a full and substantial and very sincere apology. But he never mentioned adopted people. <laughs> he mentioned survivors of institutions. 
Um, and I can't fault him from that because that's what this commission was about. Um, but I can fault the, the, the setting up of a commission to examine various institutions rather than the matter at hand. What do adopted people need? And we have a huge percentage of adopted people. Um, there's at least 55,000 since 1952. So if you multiply that by the two natural parents and then multiply it by the uh, adoptive families, that's a very big section of our population that is actually directly affected by, and I'm going to say it again, coercive adoption system in 20th century Ireland. Um, part of the, my kind of you know, beginning quibbles with this report is they have... I think kind of clangers just even just reading the executive summary. They they say in one sentence there was no evidence of forced adoption, and the very next sentence is, but there was no alternative for these for these women. And again, they're very anxious to call all of these mothers women, and they have to admit that for one institution, a quarter of these so-called women were women under the age of 18. We call them girls. So so the girls and women that gave birth um, uh, in these institutions uh, are, are the state, through this report, wants us to believe that, that, that they weren't forced to give up their babies. They were certainly coerced. There was no alternative. Yeah, I think it's a small thing there, Catherine. I think when they said there was no alternative, I think specifically the reference there was to these women and girls going in to have their babies in there. But the point you make is very valid because there's one stat there for the year 1967, which one would have thought things might have been opening up a small bit. You're talking about 97.9% of all um, children born so-called outside of wedlock were, 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 um, were adopted, which basically meant there was no choice really once you went in as you say, and the, the pressure was put on to adopt. One quick thing before we just go on to, 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 to adopt these themselves and their families. As, as you said yourself, and, and you gave the caveat about not having read the report, there was a certain amount of controversy around the fact that Michal Martin gave this apology the day after publication, the day after particularly the survivors and everybody who had skin in the game, so to speak, had foreseen the report and would be in no position to read and digest 3,000 pages. I mean, that would seem in some ways to fall into this thing you're talking about that let's just write out the story of what happened rather than dealing with the actual people. Yeah, again, you know, I have sympathy um, uh, for Michal Martin because if he, if he didn't apologise, we would now be calling for an apology. <laughs> Maybe so, yeah. So he had read it. It had been with Cabinet for a while. Um, um, and... He, there's definitely things to apologise for. I think he gave a much better apology even than the, the report would warrant, again, just having read the recommendations and the uh, executive summary. Um, so, you know, he did have to make an apology, and we all know this. Um, it is going to take a while for us to digest this report, uh, but again, you know, without somebody with, with, with skin in the game, um, um, without being somebody who's directly affected, I'm, I'm just happy to leave aside this report, to read it, take time over the summer to, to think about, about it from an academic point of view. I'm, I'm going to be reading it. Well, how is the state trying to wriggle off the hook that it, it really should be on? And I think, again, just 
from a, a cursory reading of the executive summary, I'll have loads of material here because we can see the report states one thing like there is no other country in the world where pregnant women emigrated in such substantial numbers to another country. Um, and then the next sentence, it says many Irish people emigrated. I saw that. Uh, you know. Yeah. Is that a fair caveat to put in there though, Catherine? I mean, I mean, I wondered about that when I saw it and I, I, I thought what you thought and then I thought, well, the tradition of immigration was here. I don't know. The one I really gets to me though is there would seem to be a huge conflict in terms of survivors who've spoken about the issue of forced adoptions. And what what exactly is forced if practically everybody who's in there has a baby that ends up adopted does that suggest it's forced of, of itself, particularly when the women themselves talk about the kind of pressure they were put under? Yeah, and that, that takes me again, just, you know, the, the lack of definition of terms, um, the lack of definition of concepts. Um, for example, there's in the introduction, which I found very difficult to, to make sense of, um, there's a... A very curious kind of paragraph where somebody is saying that she didn't see any evidence of trafficking of babies. And then she goes on to describe trafficking as, in other words, she saw no evidence that parents were being groomed to give birth to babies which were being taken and sold into adoption. Okay, well, that's one definition of trafficking. What's the definition of trafficking by the Commission report? We don't have it. And we don't have a clear, remarkably, we, we don't have a clear definition from them about what constitutes consent. We don't have a definition for them, a legal definition or even just a plain working definition of their commission, what constitutes force. And they also have this really, really curious parsing of the difference between the church and state and this thing they're calling society. So they want us to believe there's three different things happening in Ireland. There is society, which seems to be there before the state and before the church, and that they actually position the church as not inventing any of the morals or mores by which people live. They actually have sentences saying that. The church is merely reinforcing what society already thinks about prudent ways to manage a family. I'm just there going, guys, that's such poor history writing. <laughs> you know, we are formed through um, institutions of church and state. The 20th century society wasn't there something pure and extant without the, the, the um, um, uh, institutions of ch church and state. It came into being through the working together of a symbiotic diet of church and state. And, but it's in this parsing apart of church, state, and then society that they get to say society is to blame. So the state doesn't have to take a blame. The church doesn't have to be blamed. It is us, all of us who partied, all of us who, who um, uh, lived in the 20th century. Strangely enough, we're to blame. Again, Carlo Romani, who's is the current ombudsman on uh, children, professor of law in, in UCC, has done a brilliant job of demolishing this. You know, that we cannot talk about society as, as if it's something that's anterior to the forces of church and state. Yes, very true. And I noticed that it, it's in there as well in the executive summary. There's a reference to there is no evidence that 
either church or state forced these women into the homes but that uh, they'd nowhere else to go and it was a form of refuge and that in the first instance families were to blame. Now having said that Catherine, just coming at it slightly differently, is it not the case that through the the, the culture, through the, the power of the church at the time that as, and I accept totally what you say about what exactly society might have constituted at the time, but let's say the population in general, that to a certain extent, if you were to use language that we use today, there was an othering among the population in general, perhaps, of people like pregnant, unmarried mothers on the basis that um, they were outside the fold if you know what I mean. I mean, is there something in that? Is there culpability there? Or is it simply that population in general were, I don't know, effectively brainwashed by the, the, the prevailing hold of the church? You know, 95% of the current national schools in Ireland are Catholic church run, still. And if you want to get your child in there, particularly into a national school in Dublin, north or south of the Liffey, you need that baptismal cert. And then they're making the Holy Communion and then they're making the Confirmation. <laughs> and even still in the 21st century, we can see an awful lot of our cultural attitudes, even though we might think we're post the church, being still inherited through a Catholic church. And I'm one of these people who's not necessarily against that. You know, I'm, I'm not kind of, you know, saying we, we should have secular education even. That's, that's not my issue. My issue is that we have to admit that we are formed through our education and through the kinds of values that we absorb in our culture and society. So we live in a culture and society where the Angelus is rung on our national broadcaster at noon and at 6pm. Again, I'm one of these people who actually likes that. But don't tell me that we are post-Catholic church or that we can't understand that our culture and society, particularly in the 20th century, was a theocracy, was absolutely saturated. Everything that passed for common sense was Catholic, Orthodox thinking, and they had an awful lot to say about the reproductive, um, social and sexual lives of girls and women. So they focused very much on um, reproducing um, a Catholic population by, by, if you like, you use the word brainwashing, by educating us all around what were the duties of a girl and woman. And she had to be chased, monogamously married uh, uh, to a man and she's going to bring up those children and she'll have many, many children uh, for, the, for the church state. And anything outside that fold <laughs> was going to be punished and punished severely. One of the things that the, the report seems to kind of allude to in, in some ways in, in its mentions of Irish women, uh, pregnant Irish women fleeing Ireland in ways that we don't see in any other country in the world. Um, uh, we can also see this in kind of general terms about the emigration of Irish women in the 20th century. So Irish women are unique in all of the mass migrations of the world to places like uh, the USA and the UK, in moving into these countries, not being part of families. So in other words, they're not daughters or they're not uh, wives. Um, they come as single women and they have single female chain migration. They sent back um, for other unmarried 
women in their communities or in their extended families and helped them emigrate. We don't see any other nation in the world where its female populations are emigrating at larger numbers than the men and are emigrating in this female single chain migration. 20th century Ireland was an incredibly hostile place for all women and girls. And again, we do have some notices of that even in the executive summary. So the mother and baby home system, and I'm going to say coerced uh, adoption um, of the babies of unmarried girls and mothers is part of the massive uh, Catholic state um, pressures uh, which resulted in huge reproductive uh, injustices for women. And one of the things we don't have very clearly in the report, though th I think there, there, there will be, it will be useful for people like me who unfortunately rather late in my career, I'm finally beginning to think about class in Ireland. Finally. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the big failures of Irish academia, those of us working in the humanities and social sciences. We haven't really been able to talk about class. Because when you think about class as it's discussed in other um, um, academic studies of other cultures and societies, they're able to talk about it in terms of um, financial um, um, uh, financial terms, whereas in Ireland, middle class, working class, poor, nobody had money uh, for uh, you know our, our, a lot of disposable or much disposable income in the twentieth century. But we did do class, and we did do class largely in terms of our uh, cultural capital. That is how respectable we were in our tight knit. Um, communities. And, you know, we're both from Cork City, Mick, and that's a very small, tight-knit community. So our second city, even, we both know, is incredibly small. You know, I'd come back from town, my mother would say, who did you meet? And then we'd work out how to place them. <laughs> so every single community uh, in Ireland was a very small, tight-knit community. And the only way that we could differentiate each other uh, from each other was around this kind of cultural capital of respectability and girls and women bore a huge burden in terms of maintaining respectability so that the entire family could operate in these very close-knit circles. So for example if you got pregnant uh, outside marriage even in the 70s when I was a teenager your entire all your sister's prospects of marriage were going to be damaged. Your brother's prospects of promotion in the bank were going to be damaged. This was a shame you were bringing to your entire family. And I don't know if the report gets to that kind of information because I suspect it doesn't because of the way it just seems unable to deal with the testimonies that were coming towards it. I don't know if those were the kinds of questions uh, that they were able or even thought to ask of the people who were so generously giving them their um, their experiences. Yeah, it's very interesting, Catherine. Uh, small, small correction there. I'm not from Cork City. Since you've known me, I was, but my family arrived there when I was a teenager. That's, but I was making, uh, uh, sorry, the, the point I was wondering, I think it's very interesting what you're saying about class, particularly in relation to those who ended up in the mother, mother and baby homes. But I wonder, is there another issue there? And that is, because of, of, of the cultural Catholicism we had, was there more of an onus on what you might call 
relatively small middle class educated at, at that time as there wasn't much education in the country what, would there have been more of an onus at that level of society to shout stop so to speak in terms of how the place had turned into a theocracy or was the power of the church too great that not even them would have had a chance of standing up to it? That's a great question. But again, Mick, you're making the the distinction between the middle class and the church and the state. It was middle class Ireland who were in the church. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you couldn't be illegitimate and be a priest. You had to be respectable. Who do you think got preferred and promoted within the church? Who do you think ran the, the big religious orders? At the moment, I'm looking at uh, um, doing some research on, on the history of the, the Magdalene in Donnybrook. And their mother superiors were, you know, uh, sisters and daughters of, you know, of defence forces um, uh, 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 generals. So, so they were the upper middle class or the respectable middle class. That's who the Catholic Church was. And again, you know, one of the things we haven't kind of properly talked about in Ireland is, is, as you're mentioning, the kind of education. Even when free education came in, certainly for the education of girls. So there was very few, you know, um, uh, girls schools that demanded fees. But even in the all of the free uh, second level education schools for girls, there were class differences. So, you know, the Ursuline convents had a different clientele than the presentation convent schools. And the, the training for all of those girls was how to take up a position within the, um, uh, uh, as understood it, within Catholic society. So having gone to an Ursuline school, which I enjoyed hugely, we were always told that our, our social um, role was to be charitable, to be generous, to be kind, to um, do good works or corporal works of mercy. But there was this assumption, which was never clearly stated, was that, you know, we were the people who had the resources that could be given in that way. <laughs> and so that leads to, you know, a, a hand in glove situation where, and again, because I had such a lovely experience where it's almost impossible to think badly of the Catholic Church or its intentions towards those poor people. So you can say that the middle class people were apart from the church and should have been whistleblowing. We were the leaders and shapers and makers of that church and the state. Very good point. Yeah. Um, looking forward a small bit, Catherine. I mean, as you say, the, the, one of the, the, the main thing now is that survivors, adoptees, what they're entitled to, what they need in terms of basic primal needs that everything should be done now to accommodate them in that respect. And I've heard some noises in the last few days even that some people are wondering whether the state today is up to meeting that. For example, particularly, there even seems to be an issue around retrieving their records and birth certs and whether or not there's an issue there in relation to privacy. And I have to say, I was a small bit suspicious when our old friend, um, the Attorney General's advice was thrown into the mix because... I've known in different areas of life that's something that can be used to prevent action. But I think some people are suggesting that there's not going to be an awful lot of rapid movement in that respect. 
There should be. You know, there was a very interesting judgment that came out of February last year, uh, the Habitat Judgment, um, the Court of Appeal. And it stated that there's an unenumerated constitutional right to have one's identity correctly recognised by the state. And it was, again, specifically around one's personal birth identity. Of course, adopted people should have right to their own birth cert. It is a publicly registered document and they should have it. End of. Um, There's this fantasy that the Irish state tells itself that it was all about the protection of these unwed mothers. And it's some, it, it actually seems to believe that they made some kind of promise that these girls and women would never be contacted ever and that they, they, their, their shame and their secrecy would be safe. Whereas actually the only documents we've ever seen in that regard are where uh, these mothers were, were, they had to promise never to try and trace and contact their children. Um, we can't now pretend that the state really was around protecting or minding these these girls and women. Um, and also, you know, a birth search doesn't kind of come with an address and a telephone number of who your natural parents were. So, of course, people should have that document. Whether or not they would choose to try and trace, if they can, their natural parents, and then take another step after that and make contact that they're, they're distinct issues and, and differences. They have a right to their personal identity. It's an unenumerated right in the Constitution. They have that right under the GDPR as well, as we've recently seen in, in, in various debates that we've had um, around unsealing all of these archives now gathered under various commissions. Um, so therefore, that, that's the first thing that should be done, and it should be done uh, a very simple amendment uh, to the Civil Registration Act, just kind of copper fastening what is already recognised in, 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 as a right under the Constitution, but just spelling it out legally that they have a right to go and get their birth cert, um, and that can be appended to any bill going through the Oireachtas um, uh, these months, and that should be done immediately. And anybody who's worrying around balancing the, the rights to privacy of the mother, again, I just want to reiterate, there's no addresses or telephone numbers of the natural parents and those birth certs. So I don't see how that balancing of privacy uh, can arise in that, in that regard. And in your experience, Catherine, do you sense any um, resistance to doing that in, in as quick a way as possible? You know, I actually do think, um, just having had some Zoom meetings with the current minister, um, Roger Gorman, and with the Taoiseach, Michal Martin, that, that I don't, you know, they, they seem to think that something had to be done and that they did need to bring forward legislation. They have mentioned themselves publicly that they want to bring forward an information and tracing bill. Um, as part of the CLON project, uh, JFMR has provided them with a draft uh, information and tracing bill uh, drawn up by Claire McGettrick, Maeve O'Rourke, James Gallen and Mairead Enright. Um, you know, offering it um, uh, as a way to kind of kickstart the process. But I think in the first instance, if if they really are serious about being measured by their actions, which the Taoiseach said he was, the immediate thing they could do is is bring forward that uh, amendment. And as we all know, you know, this, this idea that the Attorney General forbids it, well, come on. The advice doesn't, yeah. doesn't, <laughs> uh, doesn't mean that it has to be followed. 
There's plenty of yeah, other legal I, opinion out there, again, which we've provided them. We've given them uh, legal opinion, and it, all of this is available on the CLAN uh, website, uh, clanproject.org uh, website. Le very robust legal opinion, which talks about proportionate way of kind of balancing the rights of adopted people and parents. Yeah, and so to stop going ahead and doing it. And for example, if the president's advice, he can refer to the Supreme Court. And if not, it's still open there for anyone to challenge. And there's no reason why it can't be attempted in that respect. The other issue then is compensation scheme. Um, you know, at this stage of life, as was pointed out in the report, very often adoptees and their mothers who are subjected to that. There's a stigma that sometimes lasts for life. And I think everybody would be in agreement. There should definitely be some form of a compensation scheme. In your opinion, in terms of the other compensation schemes, would you be confident that this could be done to the satisfaction of the people who are involved? No, based on the other schemes. Right. No. Um, I mean, you know, unfortunately, the scheme I know best is the uh, Magdalene Restorative and Redress Scheme. And the Ombudsman himself said it was the, the worst maladministrated scheme that he'd ever come across in, in his entire public service career. Um, how it was laid out by Justice Quirk was, you know, it was an ex gracia scheme and no judge wants to, wants to say that, that, you know, the scheme that he's suggesting is ex gracia. But, but the details were, were quite good in that the, the women were promised a, an equivalent card to the HAA card, which is a very, very good um, medical card. Uh, the HAA refers to the, the hepatitis um, um, blood contamination scandal we had. And... Uh, if that card had been given, that would have been a very good redress scheme, but it was gutted. Um, and they now have basically a medical card. And uh, apparently, you know, this enhanced medical card, which is basically just a medical card, is what is being suggested. Um, again, it's unclear to me, are, are they talking about giving it merely to the natural mothers or are they also talking about giving it to the adopted people? I'm not sure. Um, there seems to be some quibble about, you know, um, whether there should be a cutoff date of 1973 or, or not. Um, would that be adequate compensation? I don't know. It's, you know, it's up, it's up to, to natural mothers to let us know whether or not they, they think it is. I suppose I'm more interested in, in other forms of restorative justice and redress. I'm more interested in, again, this is probably my bias, but given my, you know, my academic interests, I'm much more interested in uh, talking about taking over some of these publicly owned institutional buildings, so Magdalens, mother and baby homes, industrial schools, reformatory schools, and making them sites of dark heritage where we can go and explore and have on our national curriculum exactly what happened to a huge percentage of our population. One percent of our population, Mick, we, we locked up by in the in the twentieth century, more than any other countries, as far as I know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, only the recent president of the United States has managed to top that in terms of the the percentage of population that's currently being incarcerated. So yeah, it's a it's a terrible um, indictment, and we're still living with that legacy. There's many people who are directly affected by that still. So we do need to understand how that happened. Um, so that we don't replicate it in the future. Um, of course, many other countries have, have histories of, of incarcerating their poor, um, but nobody did it as effectively as us. <laughs> so again, we need to take the lead in understanding that, even in international terms. 
And again, even in terms of that aspect, and there's something that has come up again in particular, I think there's some controversial situations where I think there was a former Magdalene Laundry in the inner city in Dublin that was going to be at one stage sold for housing um, and other issues like that. And I mean, is it a question, Catherine, does it get to the stage that within the, the bureaucracy of the state, irrespective of initial financial uh, will, that it's not, the financial will isn't there to drive it through, that these type of physical buildings should become, if not shrines, certainly education centres for future generations. Because it does seem a very obvious thing, yet it just, it's, it's, it's not happening so far. It's not happening so far, but again, you know, um, this Taoiseach Michal Martin has publicly acknowledged like last October and again in his apology that this is somewhere that he wants to move into, that this is the kind of way in which he's thinking. And yeah, that, that, that site, that large campus in right in the heart of our capital city in Sean McDermott Street, it was actually going to be sold to a budget hotel, a Japanese budget hotel whereby if the rooms they hadn't sold at midnight would be sold off for €35. Euro. And it was also one of these hotels where you could just, you know, digitally let yourself in and out. Um, so you can just imagine what, you know, it, it would have been the old Monto come back again, I guess. Um, so that site is still there. It's in public ownership. Um, it's a very large site. It could certainly accommodate social housing, which I think would be a fine legacy. Um uh, because in having consulted with hundreds of Magdalene women now about the issue of memorialisation, one of the things they're most strong on is, and, and what should be done with former sites, is that if their families had had more protection and more support, they wouldn't have ended up in Magdalene's. Um, so housing and education are the two things that they stress really, really strongly. Yeah, it would be wonderful to have a truth-telling centre. Um, um, and I am working on a project, full disclosure, um, which is suggesting that for that site, uh, uh, the Open Heart City project, largely run out of UCD. Um, so we do have some young architects trying to consult and reimagine what a site like that could be, because it could be a multi-purpose site. So we could have museum, truth-telling centre, we could, it could be the site of this national archive that so many politicians are now talking about, where by once we release all of these commission, massive archives now that we've gathered around these particular horrible sets of chapters of our 20th century history, we can collectively begin to interrogate and explore it there. And Catherine, just to ask you then finally, the, the, like you, obviously you, you'd be aware you, you're you're familiar with a lot of Magdalene survivors and perhaps some of the people involved in the mother and baby homes in terms of your work. Do you sense in general terms that it has been cathartic for people who were through these places, how the state has approached it, notwithstanding some shortcomings in some areas, that finally there an acknowledgement there are, is the state still falling short in that respect? Um yeah, I'm on, you know, WhatsApp groups with, with lots of, of people who were adopted and or gave birth in these institutions. And right now it's just way too early. There's, there, all the emotions um, are up. Um, they're wrecked. They hadn't, you know, certainly since the leak, they haven't slept properly. So whether or not this proves to be cathartic for them, it's, it's just a little bit too early to say. I think what would be cathartic would be measures of justice. <laughs> um and I think what would be cathartic would be to truly work to remove the shame and stigma. 
So in other words, not to faff around that we have to mind these shamed women and make sure that, you know, their children don't have their own birth certs. Where it, like, I think it really is time that, w- that we put all of that shame away. And one of the, the ways in which we can most clearly do it is uh, give out the birth certs and then have pronto, proper information and tracing legislation um, uh, within this current session of the DAW. And that will certainly, in, in the way that we saw the public apology for Magdalene's and the redress scheme for Magdalene's and, and the Dublin Honours Magdalene's event, really, truly lift the shame. So we need processes of legislation and processes of public acknowledgement and memorialization that that will do what the Taoiseach said he really wanted in his apology, which was to shift the the shaming onus being on the unwed mother onto the government and state and church and culture that did that shaming. Um, if we're really going to see that, we, we, need, we need the follow through that he's promised. Catherine, finally, some people have suggested that in years to come, we could well be in a scenario whereby the detail, the experiences of another institution, one that's with us currently, direct provision, that we could end up going back there sometime. What's your opinion on that? Yeah, we've been saying that in Justice for Magdalene since 2009 when we got together. You know, in fact, it was one of the motivations for us um, uh, in keeping going with what many told us was, was a foolhardy task of trying to get justice for the Magdalene's. We kept saying, what happened to the Magdalene's is still happening now. We have, we have a huge part of our state apparatus is in fact voluntary run organisations that are for profit. So, you know, direct provision centres, one of the worst things about them is that they're for profit, most of them. Um, and we have seen that when the profit motive comes into the the so-called caring of our most vulnerable, that that means that 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 they don't get the the care, the dignity, and respect that they're entitled to because somebody's trying to make a buck. So we've always tried to show that the the same mentalities, the same kind of desire of the state to hand off and say it wasn't us, it was the church, or it was those those people we've subcontracted out to, it's not us. Um, And we saw it with the Louise O'Keefe case, where they actually tried to say that they had nothing to do with the national education system. They weren't to blame um, for the abuse she suffered there. So that kind of mentality, which is deeply entrenched in our civil service, has led to the the current um, uh, direct provision centre, where they really do think by farming it out to uh, profit-making entities that, that... they're they're merely they're not they're no longer on the hook for it, so yeah. Um, and I think you know if there is a commission of investigation into the DP centres, I hope that commission isn't going to try and blame people like you and me, Mick, the vast majority of Irish society, which has been consistently and constantly telling politicians we don't want direct provision, we think it's wrong. You're going to have to do a lot better. So society has been saying that loud and clear um, and we need the politicians to take action. Of course, there's going to be um, uh, um, uh, crimes to answer for if they don't actually take DP seriously. Catherine O'Donnell, thank you very much for joining us today. 
That's it, folks. I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. You can get the podcast on the usual platforms or let me know what you think at mick.clifford at examiner.ie or on Twitter at at mickcliff. See you soon. Take care. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.